everybody. Eve Harrow, Director of Tourism and Community Development for Winners Hill Fund. So happy to welcome you to tonight's webinar. I am really delighted to have an old friend on tonight. Um, Professor Richard Landis has been, well, he's been doing a lot of investigations for about the last thousand years, even though he doesn't look that old. He just put out a new book, Can the Whole World Be Wrong? Lethal Journalism, Antisemitism, and Global Jihad. And um, I worked with, uh, with Professor Landis many years ago because, you know, many of us realize now that much of what we're seeing on the news is manipulated. We're going to watch a video and we're going to see that it's taken out of context and in many ways and almost always to make Israel look bad. But one of the first people to really investigate this and who coined the term Pallywood was Professor Landis. And uh, that was, what, 15, 20 years ago? It's part of the book. It's because, part of the history of the book. Anyway. Welcome to the One Israel Fund webinar. Thank you. Can you hear me? Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. Like you, is this better? What happened to the? I hear you. Oh, you hear me? Okay, hear so um, I'm going to call you Richard. We're just going to go that way. Um, so tell us a little bit about well, why you wrote this book. It's kind of like a compilation of much of the research and much of the work that you've been doing in the last few decades. But your background. Did it really set you up for this or did it? Well, I think in a sense it did. I mean, I was trained as a medievalist. And one of the things about medievalists is uh, early in the post-war period when the CIA was first forming, they actually consulted with medievalists because medievalists are trained to reconstruct a situation based on fragmentary evidence. So, particularly medievalists? Yeah, particularly medievalists, including my professor at Princeton, uh, Joseph Strayer. And one of the reasons they did this is, as I said, because we're trained to reconstruct from fragmentary evidence. And so, you know, I'm dealing with a situation in which I only have fragmentary evidence because um, I'm not a feet on the ground journalist who's, you know, confronting right. stuff directly. But certain patterns of behavior struck me as clearly embedded. And for me, you know, you mentioned that I coined the term Pallywood. I actually, it occurred to me in 2003, I was investigating Muhammad Adura. Right. And um, I got a chance to see um, the, the rushes from the, the sort of uncut footage that the uh, Palestinian cameraman, Talal Abu had sent to Charles on sitting with Omdelin. But perhaps just remind our, our viewers Charles Omdelin uh, is an Ole from France who was in the army and served in Dover Tsahal in the IDF spokesman's unit and then became the chief correspondent for France too, which was the major national uh, news chain. So he and and he was, you know, he wasn't replaced. He was sort of permanent. So he was probably one of the most senior uh, journalists in um, based in Israel covering the Middle East. And he's the one who ran the footage of the boy Muhammad Adura behind a barrel shot in cold blood by the Israelis using basically faked footage, which he then edited to make look real and showed to the public. And I'm looking at the original footage. It's about 45 or 25 minutes long. And it's nothing but people standing around. There's no action. Um, every once in a while, you'll see people faking stuff, like somebody will sort of 
throw his arms up, fall down on the ground. Of course, his hands come to break his fall. And then a bunch of people come and grab him and carry him off to an ambulance in front of the cameras. And the ambulance goes off, you know, and if he had actually been injured, that kind of treatment probably would have done him in. But and and, and there was one scene that was particularly comic. I, I won't go into it because we don't have the time. But the the Andelin's French cameraman who was seeing the footage for the first time was there and he laughed. And I said, why do you laugh? He said, because it looks so fake. And I said, yeah, all this stuff looks fake. And I turned to Andelin and he says to me something that just blew me away. He said, oh, yeah, they do that all the time. Wow. Yeah. And so what I realized was, I mean, I had been studying the footage from a Reuters cameraman with Nachum Shachaf, and, and there you could see the fake. So I knew the Palestinians faked, but it didn't really occur to me that the journalists would then take these fakes and turn them into news. They were and complicit. I, right. And that's when I realized that it was an industry uh, because they were not only the producers, but they were the consumers. And uh, that's when I thought, it's like Bollywood, it's Pallywood. Wow. Um, and yeah. how many millions of people have been affected by this? Because they're sure that what they're watching is the truth. Well, the theme of my book is that basically what happened, the Adura, uh, I call it a blood libel. It's not the traditional medieval blood libel of, you know, um, uh, using the blood of a Christian child for money. But it is a blood libel in the sense that it is an accusation against the IDF of deliberately killing children, um, Palestinian children. And the deliberate is the key thing. And when Odell, you know, did this, the, the broadcast, he said, you know, here's a father and son, the target of fire from the Israeli position. He had no reason to say that. And in fact, all subsequent investigation shows that it couldn't have come from the Israeli position and most likely came from the Palestinian position. So, you know, we don't know what happened, but people were so convinced that the kid had died in this event that when I would talk to people, I'd say, look, there are four possibilities, five possibilities. Israelis on purpose is by accident. Israelis, um, Palestinians by, by accident, Palestinians on purpose and and I'd wait for them to say staged, and they'd say uh, uh, the, the 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 journalist shot him, or or the ambulance driver shot him. But it never occurred to them. And this is back in two twenty years ago, for two thousand five. It never occurred to people then that the Palestinians were literally staging stuff constantly. So I did mm-hmm. the Hollywood movie first, just to establish that possibility before I did the movie, the documentary on Aduha, trying to show that it was staged. And then I did a third documentary, and these are all available at the website, aldura.com. Someone just asked where they're available. So perfect. Yeah, so they're all available. And the third one was called Icon of Hatred. And it was about the unbelievable wave of hatred that this uh, um, story of the idea of shooting the boy in in his father's lap um, triggered both in the Muslim world where it was a call to jihad and and, uh, bin Laden used it in a recruiting video and in the West where you have this insane 
disorientation in which a major French journalist said, this picture replaces, erases the picture of the boy in the Warsaw ghetto. So the shot yeah, of a kid, yeah. wow. Right, wow, wow. the shot of a kid who's not even, it's not clear what happened, but even a kid killed in a crossfire replaces a picture of that symbolizes the deliberate murder of a million children. Mm-hmm. How, how morally and empirically disoriented can you get? And yet that, that attitude literally swept, particularly Europe and the progressive left who adopted it whole, whole force. Mm-hmm. So you talk about this in your book and I mean, in general, this, this terminology, lethal journalism, yeah. which is a, which is a very strong expression. Right. Yeah. I, I, That's where you turn what happened uh, with Aldora. Yeah. Yeah. Yossi Kuperwasser was the one who, who right. coined it, working off of Nidra Polar's uh, essay called Lethal Narratives. And the whole point of a lethal narrative is to incite hatred against the person that you're framing with your narrative mm-hmm. and so people journalism i define it as journalism there there are three kinds of war journalism there's patriotic war journalism which is you tell your own sides propaganda as if it were news and that's the norm and modern journalism tries not to do it the second is when you're covering a foreign uh, fight you tell one side's propaganda as news, which is what the journalists do here with the Palestinian propaganda. And the third is actually, I think, pretty much unheard of, but I would argue dominates the 21st century, which is own goal war journalism, in which you report your enemy's propaganda as news to your own people. And that's effectively what the media has done, because they keep presenting the Palestinians as freedom fighters when they're jihadis. And so how do you explain this? Where's the why here? Where's the what? How do you the why? How do you explain this? <laughs> okay, all right. So I Easy think it's question, right? Right, right. It just goes straight from the. Okay, why not? so We're short on time. <laughs> right. So, <laughs> so my argument in the end of the book is that it's something like a perfect wave of three factors. One is the journalists are enormously intimidated here. They know Hamas intimidates them in 2000. You know, they were so intimidated that, you know, when the, the, the lynch at Ramallah started, the Palestinians just rounded up everybody's stuff. And anybody who didn't give them uh, any journalist who didn't hand over their cameras got, got beat up. Um, and so and so on the one hand, there's this intimidation. I think it's enormous. And I think it's a kind of public secret. Nobody wants to admit it. And there's a kind of, uh, I would argue. But it's also not just in Israel. I mean, wasn't it, who was it? Eastern Jordan uh, uh, of, of, uh, of, of CNN, in where, yes, right? In Iraq. Where he said under Saddam Hussein, like I wouldn't have gotten access or been able to report if I'd actually reported the truth of what was going exactly, on. Exactly. So one other version of this is access journalism, but access journalism is rel- relatively civilized. Uh, uh, intimidated journalism is you're literally afraid for yourself. So right. there's so there's that. The second thing is that uh, post-colonial ideology identifies the Palestinians as people of color, 
um, as indigenous population that's been colonized by a European uh, foreign colonial presence. And, and that serves really well as a kind of fig leaf for the intimidation. You don't have to admit the intimidation because you say, no, I'm just, I'm just siding with the underdog. Um, and the third thing, of course, alas, is that there's an enormous appetite in the West for what I call moral schadenfreude about Israel, which is the thrill that people get when they hear stories about Jews behaving badly. Somehow, that just has enormous appeal. And, and journalists understand this. They understand that, you know, Richard Kemp was interviewed by the BBC, and they they made the mistake of asking him uh, what he thought of the Israeli army. And he said, it's oh. by far the most moral army in the world. That's the last time Richard Kemp got on the BBC to talk about the Israeli army. They didn't want people to hear right. that. And he's a Christian altogether. Right. He's an he's amazing human being. Right. Yeah. And, and a colonel. Um, so, so one of the things that you have then is this sort of combination of three things that feed, that literally poison the information systems of the West. And you end up with a situation like BDS on campus. You end up with the situation of the president of the United States, you know, upbraiding Israel for having a minister go on the Temple Mount and follow all the rules of the status mm -hmm. quo. But nonetheless, you know, this is unacceptable behavior. You have an, a UN that's insane. Um, you know, the key thing, there was a key moment in all this, and that's just before 9-11, there was a conference in South Africa at Durban that was supposed to be against hate and racism and so on and so forth, and it ended up being just a, a frothing at the mouth uh, attack on the twin uh, the twin Satans, Israel and the United States. And it's really the point, I would argue, of the marriage of the progressive left, especially the NGO progressive left, on the one hand, and the jihadis on the other. And people were literally carrying banners of not just Saddam Hussein and Yasser Arafat, but of, of um, um, Osama bin Laden. And when Fiamma Nierenstein said to her editor in New York, in, in Italy, you know, there are pictures of Osama bin Laden. Her editor said, ah, leave the camel driver alone. Wow. Yeah. So, you know, and then you have this. And then Janine, which is so the second chapter is, is uh, about 9-11. And the third chapter is about Janine. And what you have as a result is a sort of... Um, a, a situation in which jihadis are attacking democracies and the leaders, the thought leaders of the democracies are blaming the democracies. I call it Y2K mind because it really seized in 2000, the first attack on a democracy by jihadis in, the, in modern times was uh, the attack on Israel. And it was reported as, you know, Israel's fault. And 9-11 mm -hmm. happened, the Reuters and the BBC applied the same logic that they had been applying to Israel about not calling terrorist attacks, terrorists attacks. Yeah. Um, and they refused to 
refer to 9-11 as a terrorist attack. And the Americans who wanted to refer to it as a terrorist attack would then say, but it has nothing to do with Israel because, you know, Hamas is a, is a national movement. No, Hamas is not a national movement. There's legitimate but, terrorism and there's so, illegitimate terrorism. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And and to this day on, um, on sites like uh, Wikipedia, if you look at uh, jihadi terrorist attacks, Israel doesn't appear. It's not considered part a victim of, of jihad. Well, considered that's... A, a victim of jihad. So you have a, a, a West <laughs> that's fundamentally disoriented, dealing with an enemy, and literally almost every move it makes encourages mm. the enemy, which is why the original title in my book was They're So Smart Because We're So Stupid. And I have, as my, um, my daughters told me, I can't insult my readers. I okay. said, even we're so stupid. And they <laughs> fooling everybody. <laughs> but um, but the epigram I wrote for the book was if I were a Muslim, I would consider the stupidity of Westerners as a sign from Allah that I should join jihad. And when I show, showed it to Tariq Fatah, who is a genuinely moderate Muslim in Toronto, he said, oh, I have a number of jihadis who say that. Really? So it's true. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. it's true. They're, we, playing. They're playing. We with have the literally been... And particularly the lethal journalism about Israel. I mean, you know, one of the things that Clinton, Hillary Clinton and Kerry used to say, don't refer to radical Islam because we don't want to we don't want to play into the jihadi narrative that there's a war between us and Islam. OK, so but all the lethal journalism about Israel is essentially you know, a red, a red flag in the face of a bull. This is every time you get the Janine massacre or, you know, what happened at uh, Kafar Khanna in Lebanon or what happens in, in, um, in Gaza and so on, every time these images go out of Muslim victimhood and, and Israel is portrayed as a ruthless murderer, mm -hmm. it is a huge spur to jihad. Mm -hmm. so, so the attitude is sort of double. We won't identify our enemy and we will, will run footage that infuriates them. You know, I'm just thinking because you, your, your background is so interesting. I mean, most of the people that I interview, most of the people who are involved in modern day lethal journalism or what's happening in the world have you know, they're, they're grounded in a modern education for whatever it is. And here you are where your thought process and a lot of your research is literally a thousand years ago. And, and you know, and in a minute, I'd like you to talk about that because it's really almost a thousand years. But when you go back to where this all started, really the hatred between the Christians and the Muslims, that's all over the Mediterranean, including the land of Israel. I mean, it starts even before the medieval period. It starts really with the advent of Islam. So when you see it in a broader scope, at least that's how I look at it, this is a continuation of, of an old story, but it seems because now the Jews have some power here that we rocked that particular boat, right? Between, I mean, if it's the Crusades or if it's Saladin. So how do you see this? Because I mean, you can do for us today, tonight what a lot of people can't do as a historian and right. put this in a larger context and a larger frame. And then right. maybe we can also figure out where we're going, maybe, maybe. given, given okay, so, hundreds of years yeah. of history. So in fact, the, the point of the book is to say, look, um, there was a, a psychologist who coined the term cognitive egocentrism. 
And he did it um, in describing teenage boys who could think of nothing but sex and assume that everybody else thought of nothing but sex. So cognitive egocentrism is when you project your mindset onto other people. So in the book, I distinguish between liberal cognitive egocentrism, which projects a liberal mindset onto others. If we're nice to them, they'll be nice to us. You know, wish the other, you know, welcome the other and the other will welcome you. Um, and dominating liberal, dominating cognitive egocentrism, which is ruler be ruled. You know, I have to rule over you lest you rule over me. Mm-hmm. And and the latter is actually a very old mindset. It's a mindset that's built into uh, what I call shame honor cultures. Anthropologists have since dropped this discussion, but I think it's terribly important. Yes. People in the Middle Ages are largely driven by a zero-sum honor-shame mentality in which I get honor by shaming you. My being raised up is connected to your being lowered and degraded. Um, And so, you know, for for Islam and for Christianity, the sort of supersessionist attitude, which is we have the true religion and the people who came before us who claim to have had the true religion are have been, you know, erased and replaced by us. That's really a zero sum notion of chosenness. It's, you know, in order for me to feel chosen, you have to be unchosen. That's what the Christians said. And then when the Muslims took over, they said it to the Christians and the Jews. So, you know, and I I think part of our problem is we just, I I have a whole section in the chapter on shame on our culture in Mm -hmm. which I discuss the Oslo peace process and the way in which it was completely misread because the people who were running it in the West, Israel and America and the, the Norwegians and stuff were all convinced by this positive, some, um, generous land for peace negotiated settlement and they didn't understand that any victory for the other side is a loss for your side in the zero-sum honor shame world and that to get something by negotiations is it's a shanda it's it it, you know though as nasser said this and it was repeated a lot and it was even on the wall over Muhammad Adura, the footage on Muhammad Adura, which is that which was taken by force can only be retaken by force. So here are all these Westerners thinking, you know, we're so close, we were so close. And then, you know, if only, you know, Barak had been Right. Or Sharon hadn't walked on the temple Mount, or whatever. Right. Yeah. Right. He would have said yes. No, no, he was never gonna say yes to this. And and the lack of understanding of how powerful this zero sum honor shame mindset is 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 at the core of our inability to understand what we're dealing with. So, so in a sense, the the theme of the book is that the West has been attacked by a medieval apocalyptic millennial movement that wants to conquer the world, and they say they want to conquer the world. They want a global caliphate. That's why I call them caliphators, um, and couldn't even recognize or even name the enemy. You know, so what does Bush come up with? The war on terror. Right. <laughs> so he doesn't even know who the enemy is. And and we have been paralyzed by our inability to acknowledge that we have an enemy because, I mean, we're nice people. Why would they want to? Why would we have enemies? And if they have enemies, it must be because it's our fault. Right. Um, but it can't be because it's their fault. 
So that's the that's the sort of major theme. And in terms of you know what happened here, and again, I deal with this in the book, is that when Jews became independent, autonomous population in what should be Dar al Harb, no, what should be Dar al Islam, you know, and the Jews should be Vimi, they should be subject peoples. When they became free, it was literally viewed by triumphalist Muslims as an insult. Um, and I define triumphalism as a belief that in order for you to feel good about your religion, in order for you to feel that your religion is right, it has to dominate in the public sphere. It has to be visibly superior. And when Jews are no longer acting as if Islam is visibly superior, that's viewed as an unbearable insult. And I think that was what was behind um, what was behind this this still ongoing, although I think weakened, but still ongoing Muslim rejection of the state of Israel. Hmm. So it's really because we humiliated them and they're upset about that, if you have to put yeah, it. And, and we, right. And and they have to take vengeance. In other words, mm -hmm. the only way to wash a blackened face is with blood. And we hmm. blackened their face in 48. The Nakba is not what happened to the Palestinians who ended up in refugee camps. The Arabs put them in refugee camps. The Nakba <laughs> is what happened to the Arab leadership that said they were going to wipe us out and looked like fools in front of them world community. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, to go back again to the millennialism, the Christians okay. also used to feel this way, maybe yes. even more so than the Muslims. Yes. So just to segue for a second, what happened? And if it happened to the Christians, let's assume, and, and we'll happened, obviously, could yes. it happen yes. to Islam? Yes. Um, so I argue that my argument about monotheism is that at its core, certainly at its Jewish core, is what I call demotic religiosity. And demotic comes from the Greek word demos or people, and it means the whole people. And what it means is it's a religiosity that empowers everybody, not just the elites or not just the common people, but everybody is equal within the polity and everybody is treated fairly according to their merit. Um, so demotic religiosity, which honors manual labor, uh, as opposed to viewing manual laborers as sort of stigmatized, which believes in equality before the law, which thinks that everybody has a personal relationship to God and should have access to the sacred texts and so on. Um, this kind of demotic religiosity became very strong in Europe, particularly after the invention of the printing press and the translation of the Bible. And, and people gravitated to the Hebrew Bible and gravitated to this kind of teaching. And in, you know, in America, it was particularly strong. And when the, when the revolution happened in 1789, when the Constitution of the United States was uh, ratified, the doctrine of religious freedom represented the first time in the history of Christianity that the winners were tolerant. Up until that point, tolerance was a, either a loser or a minority's creed. You, you know, there should be freedom of religion, 
so that we can be heard. But once they took power, they decided that they'd been given power by God, and therefore everybody should follow them. And the American Revolution was really the first time. And I think that both democracy and um, this demotic religiosity have shaped a kind of Christianity that doesn't have the same problems with us as the supersessionists, really pre-modern Christians. Now, the fact that so many people call into question the existence of the state of Israel, you know, to some extent, that's really quite an astonishing phenomenon. Um, you know, Napoleon was alleged, and I think it's a genuine letter, but it, we only have a late copy of it, um, was alleged to have write, written a letter inviting the Jews to come back to the land. And he says, you know, come back and regain the sovereignty that has been so shamefully denied you by the nations. And what he meant by that is people who believe in freedom believe that Jews should have freedom. And people who believe in dominance believe that dominating the Jews is a proof of their superiority. And so, you know, normally you would think that Democrats and progressives would be on the side of Israel. And yet, I think, and I talk about this in the book, and I've written an article on it, which has been rejected now four times, um, oh. about, about progressive supersessionism. In other words, the, even though they're not religious, I think the, the, the progressives believe that they are the moral cutting edge of the planet, uh, the, of the globe, and that their only real competitors are the Israelis. And a, as a result, they have this same kind of reaction that a Christian supersessionist has or a Muslim supersessionist has, which is bad news about Jews gladdens their heart. And, you know, we'll go back to the, the perfect wave I was describing at the beginning. I think, unfortunately, there's a very strong strain of zero-sum supersessionism amongst progressives in which they see Jews as their enemy. And, you know, at the turn of, after Adula and the beginning of the Antifada, there was a guy I saw regularly at a, an annual conference who was a real progressive. And he said to me, you know, um, how did he put it? Uh, Israel... Oh, this time Israel has lost the moral high ground. And I kept thinking, how do you lose the moral high ground to people who teach their children so much hatred that they want to go out and blow themselves up amongst right. the children of another people? And then I realized it wasn't that we had lost the moral high ground to the Palestinians. We had lost the moral high ground to the progressive left. <laughs> they were now high up looking down at these poor tribal squabbling peoples of Jews and Palestinians trying their best to bring about peace but those Israelis wow and and you're talking about a good number of people who themselves are Jews when you talk about the progressives yeah so now that's the interesting thing I do have a chapter <laughs> you are a good questioner um I have a chapter called uh, Jews against themselves. Uh, which is a, a term that Edward Alexander coined in a book called Jews Against Themselves. It's a brilliant book. I wrote, I think, a pretty good review of it. Um, but uh, so, so dealing with that is really hard because it's a form of what I call masochistic omnipotence, masochistic omnipotence syndrome, which is it's all my fault. And therefore, if I could only be better I could fix anything. And so you have the response to the to the Antifada 
amongst both the Israeli and the Western Jewish progressive left is to say, if only we had given more, then it would have worked. And it's our fault that it didn't work. And and so it's a really a, it's it's an omnipotence you know syndrome. It, it's like it's in our hands. And I remember when I first moved to Israel in 2005, um, I, I met a number of people and I was talking about these things. And one of them said to me, it was in 2000 that I realized, it's not in our hands. <laughs> and, and that's something that people have an enormous amount of difficulty acknowledging. So they end up becoming what Manfred Gerstenfeld called uh, um, humanitarian racism which is, I don't expect anything of other people. Palestinians, if, if Sharon goes to the Temple Mount and they start a suicide terror campaign, it must be Sharon's fault because how can you expect the Palestinians to control themselves? I mean, Stephen Breyer actually at one point posited that it might be considered not a question of freedom of speech to burn a Quran which some guy in the South threatened to do because it would be like crying fire in a theater. So in other words, the, the kind of natural gut reaction of people in a crowded theater who hear fire to panic is then compared to the rage of Palestinians, if or the rage of Muslims, if you burn a Quran. So there's a real, you know, it's a, it, it really is a form of racism. It, you yeah, know, it's exactly what I'm thinking. Yeah, They're it's not capable of controlling themselves. Exactly, exactly. And, okay, and the corollary is, country, but they can't control themselves, and we just have to. But it's our right. fault, so we have to. That we just have to suck it up, and that's how it is. Yeah, it's it's such a confluence of things that that make no sense. Well, it's a confluence of things that unfortunately make too much sense to the people who are locked into them. Um, and the book is an effort to get people to show people a way to sort of break the thrall of this worldview, which is so destructive of the very liberal values that it's supposed to embody. Mm -hmm. So the title that you do choose, Can the Whole yeah. World Be Wrong? So that's right. a fascinating title because, you know, even among people who are pro-Israel, and I've spoken to so many gazillions of peoples over the years, and people will say to me, look, I love Israel, but it can't be that everybody else, what we're saying about Israel has no basis in fact. Right. It's just right. like where there's smoke, there's fire. There has to be something going on exactly. here. Exactly. And, and I think it's very hard for a lot of people, you know, and so for instance, in 2002 with the Jenin massacre, so actually let me let me briefly go over the, the right, source of the title. There's, there's a quote from Echad Am. he wrote an essay called, can, everyone, can the, everybody be wrong and the Jews be right? And mm -hmm. it was about how people in his day, 1892, in, in, you know, Eastern Europe would respond to Jews saying, we don't eat the blood of children, Christian children. And they would say, can the whole world be wrong? You guys be right. And the second one was um, Kofi Annan in response to uh, the alleged massacre at Jenin saying, I don't think, he didn't even ask the question. He just said, I don't think the whole world can be wrong and, the, and Israel be right. And in fact, that's exactly what it was. It was literally an emperor's new clothes. It was, you know, the IDF was accused of massacring and, and bulldozing in mass graves, Palestinian civilians. Nothing like that happened. The final count was 50, three weeks 
of urban warfare, the final count was 56 Palestinians dead, 41 or two were combatants. So that's like a, a three to one combatant to civilian ratio for urban warfare, mm -hmm. which is unheard of. It's the reverse of the norm, which is one combatant to three civilian casualties. Mm -hmm. And yet the world heard this story. The journalist, the lethal journalist repeated it ad nauseum. Mm -hmm. And as a result, you literally had Jews who were saying, people like Tony Jutt, who was a brilliant historian, saying, you know, the Israel is endangering the Jews of the diaspora. And, you know, basically he was, he had a choice between, do I believe these reports of massacres or do I question the Western media? And clearly questioning the Western media never occurred to him. So, yes, you have this situation in which the whole world can be wrong, in which the sort of basic, the nut, every time you hear somebody talk Israeli-Palestinian conflict, you know that you're dealing with somebody who's already a prisoner of the Palestinian-David-Israeli-Goliath conflict. Arafat didn't say no because of the Palestinians. In fact, probably most of the Palestinians wish he had said yes, and certainly in retrospect, after you know the 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 wall the fence goes up and their lives are much less well off than they were in the 1990s. In retrospect, they sure wish he had said yes, but he was he was dealing with a much larger Muslim honor group, and and the real conflict is the conflict between free autonomous Jews and triumphalist Muslims. It's not a conflict between the Israelis and the Palestinians. Israelis have been hijacked by their leaders and sacrificed by their leaders. Yes, we have. So, you know, we you mentioned when we talk about the, the campuses and you as a professor, so normally when we talk about the campuses and that th this ideology, if you will, is really so prevalent on the campuses and you have America's best and brightest coming out completely brainwashed by this this whole thing. But I'm going to ask you now from the side of the professors, yep. because that's your group. What is going on with the professors on these campuses? Because these kids aren't getting it on their own. Someone's teaching it to them. Someone has drunk this Kool-Aid. How right. can this be? Well, this goes back, first of all, it goes back to the 1980s and 90s when Saeed's book, Orientalism, literally took academia by storm. And in the book, I say, how do I put it? This is a book every bit as bad as it was influential. <laughs> well, that's it's, saying something. It's an awful book. It's riddled with errors, both conceptual and in detail. It, there are whole books written describing what's wrong with it. And yet... It hit the zeitgeist right on the head and and seized a generation. And it was really, it's hard to describe fully um, how bad it was. But basically, it was the Palestinians are the innocent victims. The Israelis are the colonial uh, invaders um, who stole their land and so on and so forth. And... And he backed it up with a second book called The Question of Palestine and a third book called Covering Islam, which was after the the, the Khomeini's takeover in Iran, 
Um, you know, there were a lot of negative things written about the style of Islam that Khomeini represented, and most of them were fully justified. And yet he denounced this. Islamophobia wasn't a term yet, but he denounced this as Orientalism and racism and so on and so forth. And and what happened then was that the ideologues were particularly strong and the people opposed to them were still playing by the old rules. So in 2000, when it really got bad, I mean, 2000, the Adula story, uh, the the Antifada and so on, the, the, the sort of, you know, the knives were out. And I remember Dershowitz complaining because he said, you know, I'd go to the people who were in Middle Eastern studies and say, say something. And they'd say, oh, you know, we... Uh, uh, we have to be impartial, we can't take sides, and so on and so forth. And then he'd go to the non-Middle East studies professors and say, say something, and say, well, it's not our subject, how can we weigh in, and so on. So in a sense, and I think this happened even more broadly than just in the question of the Middle East, there was a kind of takeover of tenured radicals. That is, you know, as the joke goes, if you can't do teach, well, we tried revolution in the 60s, it failed, so we went to the universities. And we basically took over and started teaching our radical, post-colonial, post-modern, um, neo-Marxist ideologies to our students, um, who then proceeded. And, you know, here were the liberals in the 80s and 90s who were letting these people in because they did good work and they weren't about to exclude them because of their political ideology. Once they were in, they excluded everybody who didn't hmm. suit their political ideology. So today we have these ludicrously weighted departments, particularly in the social sciences and the humanities, in which there are no conservative thinkers. There, you know, realpolitik is literally not assigned in many courses on, of political science because it's considered regressive. So, you know, the, the takeover of the academy already happened in the late 20th century. Um, and then in 2000, it became a kind of dogma. Mm -hmm. And it's been disastrous. And, you know, Victor Davis Hanson just wrote a, a piece great. about, you know, the terrible shape that the university is in. And it's very possible that this absolutely unprecedented institution that allowed for freedom of speech and criticism and so on that had literally built in um, uh, mechanisms for assuring that, you know, dissenting voices could be heard and that the people who published were willing to accept public criticism has could, in fact, be taken down. Wow. And with it, with it, democracy. And the same thing happened to journalism. In other words, once the, once the, 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 the ideologues take over, once the activists, uh, I would call them apocalyptic millenarians, you know, who want to redeem the world, once they take over, um, you know, if the, if the liberals aren't willing to fight, if the liberals are ducking, they win. And that's what's happened so far. Liberals have not fought back. Conser liberals have not fought back or conservatives have not fought back? Well, conservatives have tried to f fight back. But, right. And any liberal that fights Blue back liberals. is redefined as a conservative. liberals, yeah. Right. Right. right, right, right. So one of the things I point out in the book is this is a really scary thing. In 2003, 
Um, Ian Buruma, writing an article about how do we talk about Israel in the New York Times, says, as an aside, he doesn't feel he has to defend it or argue for it. It's just an observation of fact that it has become a litmus test of liberal credentials to side with the Palestinians. And this is at the height of the terror campaign. In other words, the Palestinians are behaving worse than any liberation movement has ever behaved. And all of a sudden, you can't be a liberal if you don't support them. So mm-hmm. that's my that's my quintessence of the disorientation of the West and the redefinition of what a liberal is. It's you think a, this can be turned back? Or you think we're at a point of no return? Look, I'm by nature an optimist. And I, I used to have a friend who was a pessimist. And I said, you know, it's really easy to be smart and a pessimist. It's harder to be smart <laughs> and an yeah. optimist. So I'm an optimist, and I think that it's still possible. There's been terrible damage done, um, but I think that it's not – I think we can recover from it. We can't necessarily Mm -hmm. do it, but I think we can recover from it. But it would take a wave of courage and common sense that uh, – you know, I talk about it at the end of the book, and I say, look, you know, it's – it would be pathetic to have us this magnificent uh, accomplishment of the modern democratic world go down the tubes of something as stupid as people needing to believe that the Jews behave badly. And yet it's kind of hard to see how they could turn this around. Um, so if, you know, let me just make one last pitch for the book, which is the book yeah. is the book is the red pill. The book is is what you should take if you're we're all in the matrix. Take this pill, find out who you are, and start fighting back. Mm-hmm. So since you and I both live in Israel and the people who are watching this webinar very much care about Israel, do you see the same dangers happening here? Again, because the papers have all been full before this government even took took their oath of office. Everybody was talking about how Israeli democracy is finished and it's a fascist government and da, 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 da. So the things that we've been discussing are mainly pertaining, I would say in the main to, let's say the United States and Canada, to some degree to Europe. How, how, let's bring it home now. What do you see happening here? Because we've got plenty of Israelis and a lot of whom control the press that right. also very much on that progressive side of things, very pro-Palestinian. Right. I mean, if you read, uh, you know, the Haaretz, Le Monde, New York Times, and The Guardian mm-hmm. are all on the same page. Um, yeah. And there really is a kind of distressing, I don't know, it's like Israel, and Israelis are really, you know, they've they got a tough personality. So once they're set against this stuff, yeah, it's very hard to get them off, the, off their... Uh, off their mm-hmm. game, um, you know, it was, I, I remember when I was doing the Aldura thing and I spoke to an Israeli journalist, Beit Michaeli, and uh, I said, you know, what do you think? He said, 100% the Israelis killed him. You know, so, really? yeah. So you have this very powerful, very smart, I mean, one of the things I, I try, the point I try and make is that these people are stupid 
objectively, as Marx would say. In, in practice, they're stupid. In reality, they're extremely smart, but they're so committed to their ideologies that they, in, in practice, behave incredibly stupidly. Mm -hmm. um, and I, you know, I don't hold out much hope for the sort of intellectual left in Israel waking up to this stuff. There have been some people who have. There have been some people who have responded intelligently. Betty Morris is a, a good example. Yes, exactly. um, you know, but but by and large, you know, the stuff you, I, I mean, uh, I get I get uh, clips from Haaretz on a regular basis. And, you know, it's just, it's like silly stuff. Michael Sfard and so on. It's just silly stuff. And yet it's hysterical and it feeds that's the stuff the in the West. That's the problem it, because it's well-written. Haaretz is an excellent journalist. It's well-written and, and, and these people are smart, you know, like, um, oh, anyway. Yeah. Although I, I mean, when it comes to Israel, I am optimistic because ultimately we're in a battle for our lives. Right. You know, and, and, that's, and we're there. I mean, our kids are in the army. They're the ones who are, or we're on the buses because it's a terror war. So the civilian front is the front. Right. So, you know, and, and I think the, the last between, election reflects that. Right. And that's the split between Israeli Jews and American Jews. American Jews are still busy virtue signaling. You know, the fact is that when you're in a war situation, insisting that you don't have an enemy is a suicidal piece of behavior. Yeah. Now, the Americans don't have to feel this suicide, but they're insisting that Israelis do the suicidal thing so that they can feel good about the Israel that's liberal and that they're proud of. And, you know, it, it's, it's a tragedy to have Americans so self-indulgent, but on the other hand, you know, that is the generation. The, mm -hmm. It's a self-indulgent generation. Yes. Yeah, that's for sure. A very entitled generation doesn't realize how hard people have worked to keep them free. I'm entitled to a progressive Israel because right. it makes me feel good about myself being a Jew. Mm -hmm. And if Israel isn't progressive, if it doesn't behave the way I think it should, if it shows up, and here's an interesting element of lethal journalism, which is, uh, I have an article actually, and, and I discuss it in the book, on what I call the proxy honor killing. Uh, an honor killing is when somebody in your family has shamed the family and you kill them in order to preserve the family's honor. In this case, the what the media depicts of Israel is shames Western Jewish liberals. They're too nice to actually kill their family member, but they will support the people who will. And as a result, you have Jews who support BDS and you have Jews who support, you know, any negative depiction of Israel to force it to give up the occupied territories so that it can be good. That is a brilliant point that you just made. I hope everybody really paid attention to that. No, because really we talk about honor killings vis-a-vis, -vis, you know, women getting, Arab women right. getting killed, their husbands, whatever it is. But you're saying that it's it's in this Jewish world also, and we're you're going to sacrifice us because we brought shame on them because we're trying to survive. Google <laughs> proxy honor killing. That that is that is really really a brilliant idea. So, what do you think? Since we're ready on the topic, and then I'll let you go. Um, what do you think about this new government here? 
Are you, what do you, where do you think we're going Look, with that? I, you know, to be honest, uh, I only have a certain amount of bandwidth and, uh, you know, I read headlines. I, I, I don't know in depth what's going on. I have a great deal of faith in the Jewish people in Israel that they have, you know, we're in a terrible situation. There are lots of ways to disagree about how we should deal with it. I know, you know, Gershom Sholem way back in the 20s warned that if you revive the Hebrew language, you revive a language that's a carrier of messianism, and you can end up with messianism. And you have all these good liberal Jews who cite this and say, oh my God, look at this dark messianism, Ehud Barak on CNN denouncing the dark Israeli messianism and stuff. And nobody wants to talk about the flagrant, vicious, apocalyptic messianism of our enemies. So, you know, the fact is that Jews through history have developed a really good firewall for outbreaks of crazy apocalyptic messianism. We've had them, but given the given how messianic most Jews are, we haven't had that many, and they haven't lasted very long. And and I I want to think that we have the good sense not to let that happen. Is mm-hmm. it worse? Do I, you know, look at my book and think, uh, oh, people are going to say, yeah, you say the, the Israelis are different from the Muslims, but it sure looks like you're becoming like Muslims. And in fact, you know, living under conditions in which you're constantly being battered by an apocalyptic enemy, you know, tends to raise up your own apocalyptic counter tendencies and one of the rules of apocalyptic dynamics is that um you know one person's messiah is another person's antichrist mm-hmm. um, but i do think that that the jews have shown remarkable resilience in this and i think it will continue to happen um yeah. one of the comparisons i make is that you know, in the history of revolutions um with the exception of the American Revolution, which wasn't threatened by enemies on its borders, um, most revolutions, when they happen, end up devouring themselves, end up in terror, um, and uh, the the Israeli Revolution was the only one surrounded by enemies that didn't surrender to this terror instinct to go after its own dissenters and eliminate them for the sake of what it saw as its survival. So, you know, I I joke that the Jews are the least paranoid people on the planet, because if anybody else had as much reason to be paranoid as we are, they'd be basket cases. And we're not. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's a I'll have to think that one out and I'll sit with that one in a few minutes. Okay. One last thing, cause we've spoken about it before. Tell us about 1029. What happened? The year 1029. Oh, the year 1029. I wrote my thesis on this monk named Adamar of Shaban and he, um, he got swept up in this relic cult and the claim that the 
um, saint was actually not a fourth century uh, confessor, but actually the 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 younger cousin of Peter who held the towel at the Last Supper, and he created a an apostolic mass for him and so on. And the day the mass was to be recited, you know, they doctored the books and they scratched out manuscripts, which we have to this day and stuff. And, and we have the mass that he wrote and the day it was supposed to be performed, the jealous canons from the cathedral, this was a monastery, the cathedral brought in this uh, really obnoxious uh, uh, Italian canon who tore Adamar apart in public, utterly humiliated him. And he wrote this long open letter, which never got sent out, describing what had happened and so on. It's probably the one of the most vivid incidents that we have from the Middle Ages entirely, and certainly from this period where we have very few document documents. So um, that was what my thesis was about. It's called uh, Relics, Apocalypse, and the Deceits of History. And a bunch of scholars are planning to do a performance of the Apostolic Mass on the thousand... Which is in just six years? Yes. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So I see why you don't have the bandwidth for the modern news. Yeah, it's true. I go I go from, you know, I'm doing the audio version of my books. I go from recording the audio to putting footnotes in my chapter on the year 1000. <laughs> right. So you really do span a thousand years. Well, thank you so much, Richard Landis. This was this was very illuminating. I know for me and I know for a lot of our viewers as well. And I want to thank you. And I don't know if this is going to come out backwards if I hold it up. What happens on Zoom? Does it come out backwards? Anyway, the book. Can the whole world be wrong? Journalism, anti-Semitism, and global jihad available on Amazon and wherever books, fine books are sold. Amazon, and actually, actually, not only is it available on Amazon, but just today they dropped the price from $24 to $10 on Kindle. Really? Okay, so it's really a deal. And ladies and gentlemen, very worth reading, really. If we just got a little bit of a taste in the last hour of the genius that went into this book, in a very easy read, though, by the way. Okay, really, like almost it, fun. Like I found myself laughing out loud, and I thought this is really inappropriate, but it was good. fun. It was like that's what I was going for. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was like a real book. It wasn't this academic tome, but it was really something with a lot of fine points, but very easy to read, and I think explains to a lot of us not where we're going, but at least how we got into this. How we and, got in. Right. And how we got in. So, as, um, as Phyllis Jessler said, this book belongs on the bookshelf of every parent who's sending a kid to college. Oh, well, don't even get me started. Yeah, that actually, you know, what, everybody, you should send it to your kids in college so at least they have an idea of what they're up against. Okay, thank you so much. And thank you to all the viewers. And thank you to Shauna for all her wonderful behind the scenes work. And thanks, of course, to One Israel Fund for sponsoring these webinars and allowing me to choose from really the magnificent number of people that are here in Israel because I only interview people who are in Israel. Uh, and their wisdom and their just everything that they do to contribute to our daily life. And uh, so thank you so much again, everyone. Eve Harrow, and uh, we'll be back. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye. Thank you.